There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. This week's guest is more than an inspirational speaker. His life story is an inspiration to all who strive to achieve their full potential, no matter what adversity we may face. John Register is a two-time Paralympian, Paralympic Games silver medalist, Persian Gulf War veteran, and TEDx motivational speaker. He embraced a new normal in becoming an amputee following a misstep over a hurdle while training for the 1996 Olympic Games after participation in two consecutive Olympic trials. An Oak Park, Illinois native, Register discovered how to amputate his fear of disability and founded the U.S. Olympic Committee Military Sport Program in the early 2000s. He has launched a book titled 10 Power Stories to Impact Any Leader, Journal Your Way to Leadership Success, as business leaders return to work with their staff amid stressful circumstances surrounding the coronavirus pandemic and the recent unrest in our urban cities. John Register, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, Chris, great to be on with you. Oh, my gosh, ready to take the next steps. Thank you so much for having me on your show. No, I really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, so thank you. So, John, I mentioned the Persian Gulf War, your Paralympic experience, the book, and your speaking career, but obviously you had a life before all that. Where does the John Register story start? And take us up to the Persian Gulf War, please. Well, you know, I think we go back along. I don't know where to even start on that question. But, you know, I, I think the, the, the most important place is when I think about, you know, kind of getting the acumen that we all might get in life, you know, who do we learn those lessons from? It really stemmed from my parents, my mother, my father, Don and Dolores Register, and the family uh, that we have, which really inputted a lot of information, a lot of history, a lot of knowledge, a lot of advocacy, a lot of commitments into building us into who we are. For example, my my dad was jailed in Hattiesburg, Mississippi for the right to vote. Um, Just right before that, of course, you might recall that uh, some of the voter laws there would have African-Americans coming in and having to do a, like a poll tax or answer questions before they, they could uh, actually vote. So this was something that was uh, that they did. And he was jailed for that. And we look further on in the um, in, in what he accomplished is that the same jail that he was jailed in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, when that judge left, an African-American woman was placed in. So we see the impacts and effects of making those commitments and those choices that are not necessarily hard. It's not the mainstream. Uh, My uncle, Gloucester Current uh, Sr., was in charge on the March on Washington, all the platform speakers. So I didn't know all these things growing up because I was a little tyke. But later on, when I'm looking at him in the Oval Office and how he uh, said that we have to fight with the pen more than our fist, right? It was it was something that really helped me to understand and frame a lot of what I did and what a lot of what I do still today in life, uh, in in all aspects of life. So yeah, that's kind of where I think the the John Register story starts. Well, and with yesterday being Martin Luther King Jr. Day, it is very timely. And, and thank you for sharing those stories because those are fascinating. And it's great to hear 
positive reflections back in terms of how things have changed uh, over the last you know several decades. Obviously, unfortunately, there's still a lot more work to be done. Uh, but hearing about an African American female judge being put in place there, uh, certainly, you know, a step in the right direction. Right, and and it's not that it's just because she's placed there because she's African American and, and female. It's because she has the talent, the skills, and the abilities. And where we find is, you know, the disconnect in the conversation. Many times we're talking about making some commitments in life. Is that the disconnects happen when we say just get educated? Uh, you know, just make sure that you are, you know, networking well. But if I don't have opportunity even though I've done all those things, then I'm locked out of the system. And so we're talking about equity and fairness and parity uh, in those things. And I think that's really where I come in, uh, in my voice right now to help us, not just with inside of equity with uh, racial injustice and those type of things, but in all aspects, what are the commitments that we're making in our own lives? And we'll, I know we're going to get into that and talk about that a little bit later, uh, but I think that's a good framing of you know how I show up in society. And it's not a, a bashing and putting things on people, but it's really what are you going to do with the information that you have been given? And that, that's where I think um, that, we, that we start. You know, and you mentioned diversity and equity, and I've talked to several guests about, you know, the, the buzz phrase, I'll use air quotes around that today in, in corporate speak is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And right. And what we, we, we don't point say- where it's, where it's not, you know, a buzzword, it's just part of who and what we are. And it's part of the, the fabric of what that organization and we as people are. And the great thing is, can we move to a place where we don't even need to talk about it? Exactly. Right. It can, can we just be in concert with ourselves? And I think the underlying tone on DE&I underneath all of it lies belonging. Because if I don't feel if I, as, as, as if I belong or a person says, says that only you, you got in there because you're a female judge, right? Uh, then I don't equate your success to the commitments that you've made in your life. And so I look at you differently. And why am I looking at you differently? Who told me that I should look at you in a different way? Was it society? Was it other people? You know, those are, those are the hard questions that we have to ask ourselves that we'll jump into to, uh, to help us all expand and grow, I think, a little bit further. And we will get to those. So let's go back to your military service. Sure. Persian Gulf War. And first of all, thank you for your service, sir. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Persian Gulf War itself was very brief. January 17th, 1991 to February 28th, 1991. But the buildup and wind down took much longer. Why did you join the military and how did it shape or change your life journey? So I joined the military because of very um, selfish reasons. It was a means to an end. I graduated from the University of Arkansas, go pigs, um, almost beat Alabama. <laughs> so, uh, I graduated with a degree in communications, radio, television, programming and production. I was going to take a job in Mississippi, but I, I, I didn't, you know, I had almost, I went to an Olympic trials and I was, I wanted to make sure that I got all this running out of my system. Uh, and I went, I was in the mall, I saw a recruiter's office, and I saw a poster for the world-class athlete program, which allows a soldier athlete to train for two years, two, three years prior to an Olympic Games as a soldier athlete. So I said, I think I can make this program. Recruiter did not lie to me and said that's going to be tough to make, but I think that you can make with your accolades as a runner, as a four-time All-American. And he was right. I did. Uh, I made it. I joined up. And that was, that was my entry. Where it shifted for me, Chris, was when I walked the parade field after basic training uh, on graduation day, because I understood all of the brothers and sisters that walked that parade field at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, 
and, you know, full battle rattle and, and, you know, the military dress uniform and saluting, you know, the, the, the officers that were up there and, and saying, you know, that we have, we have signed up to protect our country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and protect the Constitution of the United States of America. And so that's the gravitas, I think, that really went into me and I understood I was now part of this legacy. So that was, uh, that was something that resonated with me when I wanted to be a lifer. So I took the officer selection battery. I qualified for the officer candidate school. I kept that in my back pocket because I could keep that to 35. Uh, and so I went off to try to run track and field. Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm came up when I made the team uh, and I was diverted to the Gulf War. <laughs> so because uh, we sign up to to fight and that's what that's what military folks do. We, we fight. Um, so we we got over there and I, I spent six months. Uh, just shy of six months in the in the desert, in the sandbox, in the in the you know Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and uh, a little bit outside of Kuwait, and it was uh, a fascinating experience, right? It was something I would not trade and want to do again. I and I was you know uh, praying for our brothers and sisters in arms that uh, continue to the fight to keep our freedoms, uh, but it was a great learning experience, and and it's, and again shaped uh, who I would become uh, all along the way. So let's talk about a very difficult day. Your hurling accident was absolutely horrific. You landed wrong and severed an artery that results in the amputation of your leg. I've never heard of an accident of that severity happening in track and field. Did you realize the severity of the injury right away? Oh, I knew, I knew it was severe. <laughs> so, yeah, my leg was looking like the letter L. <laughs> so if you ever seen one of those, the Joe Theismann, I think is a, is a, is the perfect example for those that, you know, follow football, know who Joe Theismann and the quarterback that, that was injured. And we saw his leg kind of just fold underneath him. So my leg went the other way. It went, uh, it hyperextended, uh, after I landed and it, it did when I fell to the ground, it did like a backwards helicopter spin. Uh, and I could see it, my shin pass in front of my face before I hit the ground. Uh, so I knew the injury was severe and I was not going to be running any longer. I think what happened though, on the track is I have, I'm a very, um, I'm a person of faith. When I say faith, I mean Christ. Uh, and so what, what happened was I had been leading like these Bible studies and stuff. And what's on the inside of you during your time of testing actually comes out. Uh, and so I, <laughs> so we don't get, you know, like our character before the test comes, we don't get it. We can learn from it afterwards, but our character is revealed during the test. Uh, and so eyewitness account said, you know, the first word out of my mouth, my mouth was like, hallelujah. And I don't remember any of that. I don't at all. I remember being in a lot of pain <laughs> that that took over, but that was a testimony of other people saying what was on the inside of me during that specific moment of the most arduous time, one of the most arduous times in my life. Uh, and they, the, my, the, the military community, remember a lot of them had been through operation desert shield, desert storm. So they knew the triage. They knew what to do. I even knew about it. And I was processing don't drink water. Cause that will send you into shock. Stay calm, control your heartbeat, all these things to try to survive that we were taught in the military. They come back when the pressure is on. So yeah, it was a very tough day, but so glad I had that military experience and my brothers and sisters around me to help me get through that moment in time. And what happened between the moment you landed and sustained the injury up to the decision to amputate your leg? Uh, I don't remember so much of that moment. I, uh, it was very foggy because once the ambulance arrived, they started pumping me with this drug called uh, morphine. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I was in and out and loopy and, you know, and the doctors reduced my knee and figured out they weren't getting a blood reading, uh, a pulse reading to my big toe with their Doppler uh, testing device. And they, re they realized my already probably is either blocked or severed. Uh, so they medevaced me, the doctors medevaced me from uh, Hayes, Kansas to Wichita, Kansas, where I underwent a 17 hour vein graft operation. And during that time, you know, I don't, I went in and out of stuff. I remember kind of waking up at various moments, but I remember very vividly, Dr. Randy Mullins from Wichita, uh, um, the, the Wesley medical center coming in with my wife, Alice holding on to my hand and my mom on the opposite side of the bed and my son, John jr. Playing with the little toy train at the foot of the bed saying, Hey, John, you got a tough choice to make. You can either keep your leg and use a walker or a wheelchair for the rest of your life, or I can amputate your leg and you can use a prosthesis for the rest of your life, your choice. What kind of choice is that? Right. So these things had, you know, came in. I realized quickly I was not going to the Olympic Games with this, the way I was running or the way my leg was, and it was going to be, you know, facing an amputation. So that part of my life was really over. And it was really the pain that spoke because my, my male deductive reasoning said, if I get rid of the leg, I can get rid of the pain. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I told Dr. Mullins, I know it has to be amputated. And he went into work. I mean, he went kind of matter of factly. Um, he uh, they did the amputation. Sergeant Major McKinney, who became later the, the first uh, African-American Sergeant Major of the United States Army, who I was serving under. Uh, as an enlisted service member over in uh, Germany at the time, he was my USER sergeant major. He came over with his twin brother uh, to watch the closure operation uh, on me. So I had a lot of great support, Chris, during that time. Uh, my wife, you know, after it was over with, and I'm trying to question, did I make the right decision after the leg's gone, right? Because I woke up <laughs> from that surgery in more pain than my male deductive reasoning had reasoned. Uh, and I was alone in the hospital room and, and no one was around me at that point in time because they sent my wife home, the doctors and the nurses sent her home because uh, not home, but, you know, to the, the local hotel, because I was, uh, I was, um, going to sleep through the night they thought, and I woke up and I was alone and I, in, in more pain. And I wanted the, the morphine drip to, to knock the pain out. I couldn't reach it because I couldn't roll over. I was too weak. I wanted to reach out to the nurse's aid station right outside the door, but you know, the tubes that down my throat made the sound too inaudible to get their attention. So I, I just laid there with my dangerous thoughts for the next eight hours. You know, who am I now? What's my identity? Is my wife going to stay with me? I saw so many military families break up after the war. Do, is my son still going to see me as his father? Do I still have a job in the military? Can I support my family? I mean, my Olympic dreams are over. All of those things were in my head and my wife saw me struggling when she came in, you know, ticked off it, that I woke up and she wasn't there to be with me. Um, she calmed me and she, by saying, you know, we know what, John, we're, we're going to get through this time together. It's just our new normal. And that really became the underlying framework of part two of who I would begin to become. What does that mean? This new normal existence. A lot of times in our lives today, bringing this forward, we look at it as a jaded kind of comment. We, we don't look at it as something that actually brings us and elevates us. Most of the time, we're looking at it in one of two ways, this new normal, that it's um, a past state that I can do nothing about. I can't go back there. Um, for example, we'll say, I just wait till things get, can't, I just can't wait till things get back to normal. 
or we look at it as a future um, or, or a present system where we can't do anything about where I guess this is just our new normal, can't do anything about it. So both of those leave us powerless. Uh, and that's why we get kind of get jaded. I look at it very different now as I've come a long way. That new is no prior point of reference. And normal is the everyday typical occurrence of a thought or an action. So if new is no prior point of reference, why am I trying to use old things, old systems, old ways to put into a new environment to get a different result? That's the definition of insanity. And But we all did it, right? I don't get my leg back. We don't get back some of the pre things that we want back and desire. So as soon as we get to a point like that, that is our reckoning moment. So that's where, you know, I, I try to help people now as I understood it for myself in my life. So let's talk about your new normal for a moment. Mm-hmm. How soon after the accident did you decide you were going to participate in the Paralympics and how the idea come into your head? <laughs> well, that was a freaky move <laughs> because <laughs> I knew nothing about the Paralympic games. Uh, it was my old coach. Remy Korchimny, who's now, I think, 92 years old, still uh, just a brilliant man that started all the sprint stuff in the United States. But uh, he found out about the Paralympic Games and said, hey, John, these Russian, you, John, you need to do Paralympic sport. No. Uh, so give, put, get back in game, right? So it was like, it was, it was this, um, not to do it, he was, he was really saying, it's time to activate, it's time to move, you know, I know you're, you're, you're resting and you're recovering. You're trying to figure now's the time to, to push. So I swam for physical therapy. I got a, you know, I got fast in the water, got a little coach, Mark Stanley, uh, and through that new normal mindset that Alice gave me that swimming kind of got me active. I wasn't trying to make a Paralympic team. I was just trying to become active, get the drugs out of my system, come back to a routine, the rituals that develop into a a rhythm, the rhythm which elevates me to a rise, the rise that creates a result and the results that uh, do a couple of things, re-inspire me or allow other people that are watching the process to catch their own vision. That's all I was trying to do. But I kept getting faster in the water and I wound up putting a goal up to to try to make the qualifying standard for the Paralympic Games in the sport of swimming. Uh, And I was so far away from like seven seconds in the 100 meter freestyle. So there's no way I was going to make the team. That was the least thing on my mind. But at the swim trials, which I did make, I've made the qualifying standard. Um, I swam one hundredth of a second slower than the qualifying time I needed for the Paralympic Games itself. So I left, you know, gravy cloud nine. So I can't believe in the course of like 18 months, 19 months, I did or 26, maybe whatever. I, I made this I, I made a better time. Uh, and so I was really happy about my performance. Uh, and then I get a call from Coach Cal from Catholic University on our team. Uh, and he says, why did you leave before we announced the team? I said, I didn't make it. You know, I got the, I got this time. I didn't make the So, well, idiot, right? Air quotes. <laughs> He's, he says in the sport of swimming, uh, even though you didn't make the 100 meter freestyle, at the flip turn, your time was lower than the time qualifying time for the Paralympic Games. So we have picked you up for our relay team. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I just went from a four meter hurdler to a swimmer (laughs) and I'm making the Paralympic games as a swimmer. So I was, you know, that was really kind of hard to process. Um, So I I learned a lot during that time. I was never trying to be in the medals or anything like that. I never thought about that. It was just over the moon just to make a team uh, on a parallel pathway. Uh, And it was at those games that I saw athletes running and jumping and on artificial limbs. And that's when I decided, okay, 
this parallel path can actually get me to what I really wanted to do on the track and field and try to win a medal at the games in Sydney, Australia. Phenomenal. That, that's just incredible. It's crazy, right? Like you said from hurdling to swimming, that's incredible. <laughs> so you said that commitment is such an important part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And as a hurdler and swimmer, you were the one who had to make a commitment to the hurdles because the coaching crowd can't do that for a competitor. Yeah. How do we make that commitment? You know, find that singular focus to achieve what we want to achieve in our professional or personal lives. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And the reason I say that is because a lot of times we don't commit. And we and and when we don't commit, we live a life of either justification, right? We're justifying to ourselves and others why we're not courageous enough to make the commitment in the first place, or it could be a little bit of regret. So I regret I did not ask that, you know, that lady out to dance or on a date or to marriage. I regret that I didn't take that course in business uh, because now I'm a little bit behind. I think what we have to do, in my opinion, is to understand that there's no going back and there's no living in regret. There's no there's no solace there because that's something that you can't do anything about. Uh, It's just like what we talked about earlier. I don't get my leg back. So therefore, the the faster I can come to that realization, that point of reckoning of what I share is uh, an understand that I don't get those things back, the faster I can begin to commit to a vision of what's coming up next. Uh, And that's where I really spend a lot of time. I don't do a lot of things in the in kind of the self-awareness, you know, self-development in terms of how do I get you there to, to make that commitment? I help you build the momentum to, to make the jump that you have to make. And then on the other side, once you've made that commitment, help you try to learn that you have to now unlearn what you previously knew to relearn in order to elevate to this next level. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are talking about that. We have a lot of books that tell you how to do things and the self-help books and, you know, which is great, but, when you make the commitment, that's all on you. So think about it in these terms. As I build momentum toward the hurdle, I come out of the blocks, I'm building momentum towards a hurdle. I have to choose whether or not I'm going to take the penultimate step and leap off the ground across the barrier. My coach can't do that for me. My wife can't do that for me. The screaming fans in the stand can't do that for me. The announcer can't do that for me. I have to make the commitment. And that's where I hang my hat. Uh, and that's very difficult work. I'm not for everybody because, you know, I've had to go through it and I'm going to be very critical on making sure we don't go left or right with the blinders, uh, you know, to, to keep the blinders tight instead of very wide and broad. Because if I hear you start talking about other people or society, other people trying to believe for what's us, what we can or cannot do. And I didn't do it because of this family member or because of that, or I hear society come in there. I'm going to say, but what is your commitment to this? What are you thinking about this? And we don't like being in that moment where it's on us. We're very good at putting it out on everyone else, myself <clears throat> myself included. And I have to be the one to focus it in. I just did the other day trying to blame some, someone on some, somebody, somebody else when I need to take ownership and commitment to what I have said I was going to do. Uh, and then when we make it to the other side on that commitment, and we're I, I call it the rebirth now or the, or in the new normal mindset, uh, I now have to unlearn what I what I have learned. And I said that once before, but the here's what I mean in practicum. 
we just talked about the we didn't talk about the Paralympic Games in Sydney, but we did talk about Paralympic Games in in the uh, in, as, as a swimmer. When I started uh, at the hospital, I had to um, uh, relearn how to do everything as far as walking was concerned. Right? It was it was not to go to the Paralympic Games. I didn't know anything about them. I had to actually uh, learn how to get up out of my um, bed into a wheelchair. I had to learn how to wheel myself out to uh, my prosthetic appointments. I had to learn how to walk between, you know, put on an artificial leg. I had to learn how to walk between the parallel bars safely. I had to learn how to go to a four bar walker from the four bar walker to uh, crutches from crutches to a cane, cane to free walking, free walking to, to swimming. And then later on swimming to running, running to jumping and jumping to a second Paralympic games and a medal. But that process, Chris took six and a half years and we're thinking that if I make a commitment, I got it. I don't need to do any other work. I've, I've done, no, we got research to do. We have to unlearn in order to learn. We talked about it earlier in a pre-call. Now we're talking about how much um, in, in society right now, what we're trying to, to learn. If we go back to how we just kind of came into the conversation, whether or not we're going to actually learn the entire history of the United States of America, or we're we just going to pull out a segment that's most comfortable for us. Germany's done it. Germany talks about the Holocaust. They teach it in their curriculum so that they will never repeat something like that. And they honor that uh, in their in their form. And, and do we do that? Do we follow that path? Or do we say, no, we have our history. We're going to wave the American flag. We're only going to keep it. We've, we've already we've already come to, you know, the, the, the stanza of our of our in, in the line of our, in our national anthem that we have. Um, our, our freedoms are already there where we don't need to do any more work. We have arrived. Or are we still striving for a more perfect union? Right. So that's what we have to answer for ourselves. And some people say we're there and some people want to go back and we can't go back. And some people say that we're not there. So it's 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 all on how we're going to make that commitment. And we hear, give us your tired, you're hungry, you're poor. And in this side of your mouth, let's build a wall. Let's build a wall. <laughs> so are we aligning with our values? It's, it's and I get I get it. There are going to be people on other both sides. But again, why are you on that side and on that fence? Make your commitment to it. What are you doing? If you were the one coming in and coming you know, to the country from your forefathers that were coming in and a wall was put up for them as they go back because, uh, you know, there's genocide going on in your country. We don't want you go back there. Um, what would you do? And, and so that's the, the thing of what we would do and how we can empathize. That's what made America different uh, than, than, than other countries, right? Uh, so that's, that's my, you know, kind of comment soapbox on that one, right? <laughs> We've been talking to John Register, Paralympic Games silver medalist, Persian Gulf War veteran, and TEDx motivational speaker. And we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? 
What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back with Paralympic Games silver medalist John Register author of 10 Power Stories to Impact Any Leader, Journey Your Way to Leadership Success. And John, before we get to the book, right before the break, you're mentioning justification. Mm. We hear all the time about the relation of fear and courage that takes courage to overcome fear. You focus on the relation between fear and truth. In fact, you've said, when our fear outweighs truth, then we can live a life of justification. Talk about fear and truth and what you mean about living a life of justification. Yeah. So the, so what I mean by that, really, if you kind of go on my LinkedIn page, right, you'll see a a banner and the banner says when truth outweighs fear, we'll commit to a courageous life. Usually when I'm doing keynote addresses, I lead the audience with an action step. And that action step is to not fill the rest of that in. So when truth outweighs fear, you know, what will you do? Dot, dot, dot. So that's, that's for you. Again, we're going back to the individual. The justification piece comes when we have we're living on that fear side of the equation and we begin justifying uh, to ourselves and to others why we were not courageous enough to make the commitments that we knew we knew we needed to make, but something held us back. And usually that fear is in ourselves. Uh, we fear going, we, we, we want to go back to a previous state. Uh, the fear is of others, other people believing for us what we can or cannot do, which is based upon what they believe they could or could not do if they were in our situation or society. What has society dictated to us to make us be fearful in the first place? So quick, quick uh, side story. Uh, When I'm six years old, I'm watching Captain Hook uh, in the movie Peter Pan on the Walt Disney's channel, right? Uh, Captain Hook, he's dark and mysterious, got that weird mustache looking thing. I'm six years old. He's got this hook, this claw, this arm that's scaring the Lost Boys, scaring me. He's meant to do that. But wait a minute. Now, fast forward. I'm an amputee. Is because of my artificial leg? Does that remind people of Captain Hook and why we should be afraid of others? What is society telling us? When I, when I was building the program for the military, uh, military sport program, one of the greatest challenges when people said, thank you for your service, you know, was to, to remind them of these, these people, these soldiers, men and women who've been burned over 90% of their body that were getting scrubbed in, the, in, in Brook Army Medical Center. And now they're being discharged to sit across from their families. 
Yet we celebrate on Halloween the nightmare on Elm Street. And we see these people with disabilities disfigured, burned over their bodies, and we're supposed to be afraid of them. Is that how we're saying thank you for your service to these veterans who are now across from their families and their children? So their children be seeing them as nightmares on Elm Streets or whatever street they're growing up on? God forbid, right? We don't ever want that. But we are passive when we go out and we watch the new movie and we see the, the new flick that's out there. And every many of the, the, the villains have disfigurements or mental health issues. And now we're afraid of that in our society because we've been conditioned to it. So that's what I mean. Do we hold on to those things or and, 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 and embrace those fears and do those fears create a, a, a blockage of the momentum that we need to jump and make the commitment that we know we need to commit uh, that we need to make to get on the truth side of the equation? Let's go back to your book, 10 Power Stories to Impact Any Leader, Journal Your Way to Leadership Success. So your book was published in May of 2020. It was released obviously early during the COVID pandemic, but I'm guessing you started writing it before the COVID lockdown. I did not. You did not. <laughs> so here's what happened. Um, I guess never assume, right? Uh, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, you can assume. <laughs> maybe right, maybe wrong. Uh, the the here's what happened. I had gotten back from a trip in Dubai where I saw a lot of leaders, you know, and then I, then I, after that trip in Dubai in 20, right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it was then secretary of state, uh, Mike Pompeo asked me to come in and talk to uh, all of the ambassadors and Sargent affairs. And I saw that there was a lot of, I won't say fear, but you know, ambiguity and what do we do? How do I build my team? How do I support this team in an environment that we've never been through before? So I was asked to come in and kind of share some of those messages. And I realized that I can't get to every one of these uh, locations around the world. How can I get these ambassadors in charge of affairs to bring their own story and cause that? So I wrote 10 power stories of 10 stories that I just have in the can that I don't really share on audiences and, and stages. And I put that in with what I learned from those coupled with a book, a workbook that uh, allows people to journal the story that they are hearing as they read my story. So now they get a chance to have their own story in a time of crisis because uh, I had a great boss. Her name's Colleen Amstein. When I was working for the Better Opportunity for Single Soldiers program, she said, John, always work yourself out of a job. And so that was my way of working myself out of becoming a professional speaker, right? It was to help others uh, tell their own journey stories. And that's really why I wrote the book. It was very quick. Uh, it's not the book I really wanted to write, but it was that book. And it was a necessity, I believe, for at the time um, of that people needed. It. And, and it showed in the, in, the, in the way that folks bought it. It was only on Kindle. I didn't put it out like paperback. I was trying to do that right now. But I wanted something to get out there real fast for them. And it went to like number one on all the, like Amazon, like all the categories. It was like for like a five seconds and I got the screenshot real quick to prove it, right? So <laughs> it was, uh, and I didn't really promote it. I just kind of just put it out there and just offered it, right? As here's, here's a help for you. And I think that's what we should be doing for others, helping us all get through these times um, and showing up for each other in that capacity of, of service. Why and how did you choose those 10 stories over other stories you must've gathered over your life? Oh, I don't, I, I think they were the ones that were most prominent for me. Right. So I tell a story 
of my son. Uh, and it was his, of what he taught me, right? So I'm t- trying to teach you. Let me tell you how I learned from a six-year-old. And, you know, um, we used to, after church, we used to run down a little country church. My wife, you know, we got married in a little country church and uh, in, in Arkansas. So after church, we would race down to this little creek. He's like three years old, four years old. And, you know, like kids, they would always, they always want to win. So they step in front of you to try to block you and cut you off. So we did that. And when I had my amputation, my son, you know, he's now six years old. He says, hey, dad, let's race down to the creek again. Right. It's like hundred meters. And I said, you know, I, I can't, right. I had this leg. It was hurting. Uh, the sweat was coming through. I was getting fever blisters and I just could not run on. I didn't even know how to run on it. So I had to look at him and and come t- and say uh, to him in, in this moment, you know, I, I can't as your father, I can't do this. I just can't physically do this for you. And so then he looks back at me and says, well, dad, can we just walk down there? And that's the moment I realized it's not about the race. It's about the relationship. So the point is for all of us, how are we showing up for each other? How are we, are we trying to race? Are we trying to just get through this pandemic? Or are we trying to build the relationships that are going to have us have longevity of these relationships? If we're building the, the race, what we find is people are having the great resignation because you're not concerned about my well-being Many in many cases, I know some others are, are other than that, but are you concerned about me as a person or are you just concerned about the race of making revenue for your company and not concerned about my well-being? Those are the things that we have to ask ourselves the question. I can't answer that question for you. Only you can. Only you can make the jump you need to that you know you need to make in life. You talk about the race. And I personally am looking to race through COVID. I'm done with it. I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm over Zoom. You know, and hopefully this Omicron wave is it. Fingers crossed, God willing. But in terms of what we've learned over the last two years, yeah. you know, as individuals about ourselves, about our families, about our colleagues, et cetera, about the world, you know, I've talked a lot about over the last year and a half during this um, about mental health and how the one good thing I think about COVID 19 is it's put a positive spotlight on mental health because you see all, kinds of news stories now about children, uh, elderly folks, veterans, obviously, who you know need the interaction. What can we do now as we look to a new world order? And that is, you know, we made it through the pandemic, now an endemic, hopefully, God willing. We, when COVID started, we had George Floyd, and that was just mm-hmm. the world didn't know what to do. The United States was on fire. And it's something that, you know, we talked earlier, hasn't changed in 60 years. Yeah. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth, you know, shut your mouth and, and listen, right? Uh, what can we do now to, to help each other through this, this next chapter in civilization and society as, as the, you know, the, the bright shining light on the hill for this great nation of ours? Well, I just think you said it in, in your, in part of your, the, 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 the presenting of your question is civility. Uh, are we showing up civil? If we're fighting each other, we're not civil. We're not being civil. There's another way to have discourse without bringing fisticuffs. As I said in the first part of the show, it was my uncle, and my father, that taught me to to fight with the pen. Uh, we fought with the pen when we first founded the nation. Those individuals that signed the Declaration of Independence were signing their death warrants, is what they were doing to come against King George. If you think that. We can appease people and they will eventually come around to the way that we think. 
Think about how our nation was first begat, how we, how we first started. Um, we first took it away. We wrestled it away from the Native Americans that were here, the indigenous people. Secondly, we were then tr- coming with um, with King George and, 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 um, and, and England at that time. They wanted to expand and colonize. And we said, nah, we're, we're going to keep your tea in the Boston Harbor. It was a fight that happened. Power does not yield itself. Power is taken. Now you can have uh, status. Status is, you know, people fight for status. That's how England did so such great work because people will fight for the status that they want, but the, those in power, they're never, they're not giving away power. Uh, they're going to have others fight for the status that's there. So we have to learn of civility. We've taken civics out of our classes, our classrooms, and we don't even know the basics of the three powers of uh, the, the three branches of government any longer, right? How many Americans will, have, have we seen on, on television that when they're asked, what are the three branches of government? They don't know. We've taken that out. And so now we're trying to insert uh, our belief system on somebody that has given us what to believe. Uh, and, and so we have to go back to learn, right? Is what, what am I going to do to educate myself? I have a, a whole process now. I just came out after my mom, I was, we talked about my mom when she passed away. And one of the things that she always taught me was, you know, kind of follow through on your commitments, right? So I, I did some things after her death that, that were a follow through on her commitments because she would be coming up and waking up for, for, from, from their grave talking about you didn't do that commitment, right? She was on me about that. Um, and I, I think what happens is we, we don't follow through on that. We want other people to learn the information for us. Uh, we want it really quick. We want the Burger King. We want the McDonald's. We want the uh, Amazon shows up at my doorstep every morning, right? So we want the, the commitment that we want the ease of it. We don't want to do the work. And I think we have to get back to really doing the work and understanding, you know, where we are. I, I have, uh, after being on the one of 35 co-chairs for President Obama during this re-election, I got a chance to see behind the curtain on both the Romney side and the um, and the Obama side, more on the Obama side than the Romney side, but really smart people on both sides of the coin, right? But what it taught me <laughs> was number one, I don't want to go into politics. That's not, that's not my bag, right? <laughs> uh, it also taught me that there's facts that are out there and we choose to uh, choose which facts we're going to share with information. We're going to, we hold information back in order, and, and instead of letting people just do true journalism and you make the choice because you've done the work. So if you really want to kind of, you listen to some other stations, you know, I, I go outside the U.S. to actually hear what other people are saying about the U.S. because it's it's unj- it's mostly unjaded news, right? It's, it's I, they're just reporting on what they've, what the facts are. So I don't have to listen and kind of filter down through, whether it's uh, one station left or one station right, I can get a, a, an unbiased uh, opinion of it. And that that kind of shapes how I, I see different, the lens I see different issues that are going on. And it gives me a, a global perspective of how that actually inserts itself into the, the, the world because I'm a global speaker, not a, 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 a national speaker, right? So I have to understand how this impacts the entirety, what I say impact the entirety of the world. Um, I just spoke over in Dubai for, I was asked to go on another trip for, from our, our State Department on disability, on the UN's, uh, United Nations uh, Disability, World Disability Day, and to host a, a conference at the, the Expo 2020 Dubai, which is now Expo 2021 because of, of the coronavirus. And, and in that, I had, to under, I had to realize and shape my comments around 
a global lens, right? It wasn't, yes, I'm in the American pavilion, but I have, you know, eight, nine other countries that are in there listening to the conversation. So the framing has to be with a global lens and not saying top down, America knows best. What can we also learn from it? So that's that's a very unique skill set uh, in which to, to do because everybody can't do it because they don't have that lens. They only get one viewpoint or another, which makes you uh, myopic, in my opinion. You know, a moment ago, you shared the story about your then six-year-old son and, yep. and what, what you learned as a, as a person, as a father, as an individual. And then just now you're talking about civics and the three branches of government. My nine-year-old son in fourth grade is studying the three branches of government right now. Yes. And he was... <laughs> asking me the day, well, dad, if all branches are equal, then why does the president have veto authority? And how can the Senate go into filibuster? And how does, why is there a minority whip and a majority whip? And I'm like, wow. Uh, you know, it's amazing those, if we just exactly. Those are the questions, them. right? Yes. Yes. That's and they're asking the learning. six and nine years old. Absolutely agree. And to, to have that openness and that open-mindedness and to, to want to have that yearning to learn, uh, you know, makes me feel good about the future of our country. You know, there's kids like that right. out there. And why was it put in the first place, right? What what was the original intent, intent. Yep. right? So you have to be understand, uh, we don't have time to go into all that stuff today. But, uh, <laughs> Next show. But, but uh, yeah, I think that's that's the learning. That's And if we don't know it, it's not a lick on you. It's learn it. That's the onus. It's on, commit to learning. And I've spoken before, I was mostly raised by my grandparents. I had a single mom. My grandfather used to always say, don't do as I do, do as I say. And those aren't really words to live by and certainly not words to, to raise a child by. And so mm. one thing I've also learned and taken advantage of being at home for the last almost two years is to learn from my kids. You know, I've got three kids here and, you know, my nine-year-old son is now reteaching me things to think about and open your mind. And, you know, you said relearn earlier in the show. Relearn, yep. And so it's just, it's a powerful and positive thing. And so I appreciate you raising that. So because Next Step Four is about personal empowerment, we often make the point that all of us are leaders in one form or another. If nothing else, we need to effectively lead ourselves. What lessons can someone who doesn't necessarily lead a big organization learn from your book? Yeah, I, th I think what the, the, the greatest lesson is that you have a story. You have uh, not only the business story, that's what most people gravitate to. A lot of books are out there on business stories and how to tell that. But you have a story, a personal story. And the personal stories are the ones that really resonate in times of crisis. I mean, it's great to come up with your values and it's great to come up with your mission statements and those type of things, your vision. But when people are hurting, they want to know that you empathize with them. Um, you know, another great speaker out there, Brene Brown, she does great work within talking about this, this kind of topics as well. I would encourage you to, you know, follow her. Um, but just think about it from the standpoint that you have a story. And if you become uh, vulnerable with your story in times of stress, in times of crisis, people, they will come alongside you. You will be the leader because you're going to lead from an inspirational standpoint. In our company, we say that inspiration is the catalyst to motivation. Many people peg me as a motivational speaker. I'm really not. I mean, that's what gets me gigs and books, bookings and things because they think I'm motivational, but it's really inspirational. And the difference is that inspiration is the catalyst to motivation. Motivation turn causes actions. Actions lead us to transformational results. And these results, they re-inspire us or allow other people that are watching the process to catch the vision. And so the measuring stick for that, the measuring tool is uh, for us is creating echo effects. So as ripples go out from us, 
that the whole inspirational cycle is a ripple effect that goes out. It gets bigger and bigger, uh, but echoes come back. So when it hits resistance, it'll come back to you to course correct you. Mammals like uh, in, in the water, dolphins and whales, they send out echolocation, tell them where the food is at. They comes back to them. People who are blind and visually impaired, they sometimes use echolocation. How big is a room? How small is a room? Where's this corridor? And they can use it very effectively. And in our lives, we have moments that people will tell us what they're hearing, even if they have not heard it from us in the first place, and it came from somebody else, you tell somebody, they tell somebody else, and all of a sudden, a person makes a change in life off of what you said, and it comes back to you. I won't go into, I got plenty of stories on that, but those are the, our measurement tools in our company is what comes back. Are we on the right path? Are we delivering the value our clients really need to let them ask the hard question, but also help them to not have phantom pains, right? I get phantom pains all the time in my leg, which reminds me of a previous life of when I had two limbs, but I don't have two limbs. It's only a phantom pain. It will pass. And so I have to, even though the phantom pain might come there and somebody might remind you of something, you have already come past that. And so how we get you past that phantom pain to, to elevate into the moment of resolve where I know exactly who I am. I know exactly how I've show, I'm showing up because I've done the work. I've done the education. And now you need to um, um, bring that back into it. I'm never going back that way. You need to catch up to where I am. In addition to being an author, you're also a motivational speaker and a TEDx speaker. How'd your speaking career begin? <laughs> Through the military. <laughs> Drill sergeant. No, <laughs> uh, I was doing, I was hosting events for uh, a program, the world-class athlete program. After I got out, I started working for the world-class athlete program and I had a group of athletes and I worked with uh, total army involvement in recruiting, trying to put troops in boots. We would go to schools. I would be the host, the MC. Uh, I would tell a quip, a story, and I would introduce the next uh, uh, athlete speaker. After I got back home to, I was living in Springfield, Virginia, recruiters called me up and said, hey, the kids in the schools are really resonating with your message. Can you come back down here and offer them like a 40-minute presentation in, a, in, a, in, a, in an assembly? Uh, principals want you back in the school. So they're, they're, they're not dummies, right? They want to get back in the school so they can get more troops and boots. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come do that. Then they said, the magic words. How much do you charge for that? <laughs> And I said, let me get back to you on that one. I, I was playing like what I know now is kind of country dumb. You got to hold, hold back a little bit to understand. And then you go back and understand what you don't know. Uh, and that's, that began the, the, the whole career uh, of, of professional speaking. Now it's, it's very poignant, right? We are, I, I'm getting so dialed in. I'm not, um, you know, when the pandemic hit, a lot of my friends went to become coaches and trainers and all this stuff. I went deeper into my content, deeper into the message. And so now our vision really is to inspire worlds, inspire worlds. The outcome of our message is, is focused on that inspirational cycle that I, sh I shared with you uh, to create that echo effect. And then the mantra is to, um, to, to go forth and inspire your world, right? Because go is the command Fourth is the direction. Inspire is the vocation. Your, because only you can do this work and world because it's your sphere of influence. Our clients are either about to make a commitment or have made a commitment to a um, to something that they know they need to do in their life, and we're going to, uh, um, you know, make sure that that is what we are targeted on, uh, and that's where, how we show up. If we're outside those lanes, it's not that we can't do it. But we're going to try to find somebody that can actually help you in that in that moment. So that's where we are. Uh, that's where we hang our hat right now as a, as a company. I read an article a few weeks ago that the word for 2022 is resilient. 
but I want to use a word you just use, inspire. We need to be inspirational now. Yes. Yeah. So we have just a few minutes left. Regular listeners and viewers know one of my favorite questions for an author is, do you have another book in the works? I do. Sneak peeks? Yeah. Yeah. Sneak peek. Uh, sneak peek is the one I really wanted to write, the, the Hurdle Adversity book. So that's out there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting that together right now. Um, and it's, it's going to be all these kind of lessons in that it's an autobiography, uh, but it's going to, it's, it's going to be peppered with these learning points inside of it. Uh, and, 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 and hopefully some other, some other surprises that will be there that can actually engage the reader in the book itself. So as you're reading, I think it's really important that we're learning along the journey, right? So it's just that not just read the book, but actually learn as, as we go, go through, cause I learn just as much as anybody else does by going through this process. So I hope, hopefully it will be out, you know, I know hope's not a plan, but you know, it's a, it's a start and beginning that it will posted. be there middle of the, of the, of the year, you know, I Terrific. try to get it down, uh, but um, um, prayerfully be out the, the actually third, third quarter of, uh, of this year. And how can people in their audience reach out to you for speaking events? Uh, the, the fastest way is my website, which is johnregister.com, John, J-O-H-N-R-E-G-I-S-T-E-R.com. Uh, for those that want to kind of connect with me on all the social media and kind of see everything in one place, there's a link tree that I have. It's uh, L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E.com and then slash John F. Register. So linktree.com slash John F. Register. Everything is there. Uh, we try to make it very easy for for folks, and we want to we want to support. We want to know what you're dealing with, so that we can offer uh, and be of, of service. Whether it's us that comes in to to do a presentation, uh, and we do those in keynote addresses, we do them in trainings. Uh, we have a, a leadership USA that we're just doing a leadership program that I'm working with a wonderful woman, Kat Coppett, uh, as a uh, uh, she's an amazing uh, soul, and and so we are putting together CEO executive type retreats. Uh, for them to listen because they uh, they didn't get a chance to listen during COVID a, a lot. Uh, they they were reactive, um, so we're 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 trying to push in that space as well. So a lot of things on the horizon, and we just thank you so much, Chris, for this opportunity to be on your show. I hope that the listeners out there engage with us. We we want that conversation. New program just started up once a month. Go on LinkedIn. Go find that one. LinkedIn is my uh, LinkedIn.com slash in slash John Register, I think it is. I think that's what it is. Uh, but uh, I have a friend of mine now, Daniel. We just met over in Dubai, and we just started some leadership stuff, uh, just talking about how to build teams. And we're going to do it once a month. So come on out there, uh, look at the look at the last one. We just we just did it yesterday for the first time. We'll be there, John Register. You're an absolute inspiration, a terrific leader, uh, and somebody I'm proud to call a new friend. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. It's an absolute honor. Thanks, Thanks to our Bruce. viewers and listeners for joining us here this week. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe, keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.